In the next five to 10 years, I think the Quad will have been successful if we don't have a major military conflict, a state to state level one in the Indo-Pacific. You're listening to the USSC Briefing Room, a podcast from the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, where we give you a seat at the table for a USSC briefing on the latest developments in US news and foreign policy. We'll cover what you need to know and what's beneath the surface of the news. Hello, I'm Victoria Cooper, Research Editor at the United States Study Centre. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're recording on today. The University of Sydney is located on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. We have some special visitors in the briefing room today. I'm thrilled to be joined by three rising think tank opinion leaders from the World Learning Exchange Programme. And the program is aimed at advancing quad cooperation. So all the way from the four corners of the Indo-Pacific, I'm joined by Shu Ushida from Waseda University in Tokyo, Japan, Dr. Gaurav Sani, the co-founder of the Council of Strategic and Defence Research in New Delhi, India, and Lucas Myers, Senior Associate for Southeast Asia at the Wilson Center's Asia Program in Washington, D.C. Welcome to all of you. Gaurav, if you were to describe your impression of Australia so far in one word, what would you use? Surprising. <laughs> in a good way? In a very good way. Brilliant. Okay, that's a great start. So uh, for some context, uh, my guests today have come to Australia to hear from and understand Australian attitudes and interests in the Quad, which is the quadrilateral grouping of Australia, Japan, India and the United States. And they're also here to talk about the areas that these four countries may more closely and effectively cooperate. And this is not our first time together. The four of us have met in first met in Washington, D.C. in March last year, and then we toured in San Francisco. Gaurav hosted part of our broader group, so there's 20 of us in total, uh, but you hosted some of us in India. Uh, Shu took myself and another couple of quad think tankers through Japan in December. Thank you, Shu. Thank you. <laughs> and now I have the pleasure of hosting this group and trying to explain the several Australia-isms and quirks <laughs> while the group concludes the exchange in Canberra and Sydney this week. Now, I'd love for this episode to be a fun reunion pod episode where we reminisce about our travel stories, instances of lost passports, who could forget, and <laughs> the great food. But what I really want to discuss as the exchange wind downs is what we've all learned about the quad because we did lots of fun things, but we also have now spent up to six weeks of the last year dedicating ourselves to meeting with the relevant foreign ministries, different think tanks and thought leaders, and asking lots of questions about what the quad is and isn't and what it is and isn't trying to accomplish. So before we dive into our questions, our final segment of the podcast is called By the Numbers, where our guests share one numerically themed fact or stat to share and why they want to share it. So are you guys good to go on that? Absolutely. Definitely. Good to go. Good to go. Great. Okay. So our earliest conversations were about what is the quad? How do we define it? What is it that we're trying to do? Is it about security? Is it not about security? So, Lucas, I'm going to start with you because we started in the United States and I'm just going to shoot from the hip. Is the Quad just an anti-China coalition? No. Now, to explain a bit, I think it's the Quad is essentially at its deepest point a coordinating mechanism between the four countries that have many shared interests. Now, of course, there's divergences. But I think grounded in all of this is that we are working more closely together now. We are coordinating more closely. And over time, we're building this relation, these relationships that will provide a stabilizing element in the Indo-Pacific, which is where our core interests lie, 
Now, I think in many ways that does mean that China is looming as a threat. But really, I think the Quad is also contributing to security in non-traditional ways too. It's about public goods, but it's also about uh, ensuring that the region is able to stand uh, and be free and, and remain open. Mm. So I guess it's a sort of expansive view of what security is. You know, we're not just talking about traditional hard security, military. There's also elements of economic security, as we found out. Um, okay, so that's really helpful. So Gaurav, what do you think? Does that fit in with your definition of the Quad? And has it changed since you've begun your travels? Yes, definitely this has changed. I think when we started uh, in March 2023, we still were using uh, the quadrilateral uh, security dialogue, right? And now that we are ending almost this program, uh, it's become just the Quad. And what we've heard over the year is obviously things like a diplomatic network, uh, something that uh, Lucas also referred to. So it's definitely changed, not just in its uh, shape, but also in terms of what it wants to do, its aspirations for the region, how much it wants to open up to the region. A lot has changed in my in my assessment. Okay. And um, Shu, does that align with your perspective on the quads? Is it about security? Is it about public? Mm, actually, the, the Australian officials who we met in this segment emphasize the quad is not about security anymore. But I think it depends on the definition of security and the concept of security has been changing. And of course, we can talk about hard security as well. But at the same time, we talk, we can emphasize the importance of the human security and the other security issues. So we don't need to divide the uh, the question into the, the quad into the uh, public goods or uh, security issues. I think it's both. Mm. It's Yes. Yeah, it's what about public security, public goods or security? Yeah, and it's integrated, yeah. of course. And I, and I, if I may sort of add on to that, I think one of the ways that, especially now when you look back at uh, at the one year of our exchanges and meeting different kinds of people in India, uh, in Australia, in Japan, some of the people in Japan as well, I think uh, you can probably talk about three parts. I was referring to this earlier. One, obviously, we've seen increasing uh, increasingly is public goods, right? Uh, uh, delivery of these public goods. There's a lot of debate about whether we are doing it right or whether we will do it right or whether we are laying the foundations of uh, delivering public goods as for maritime democracies, right? Uh, but you cannot take away the security aspect. Uh, the security aspect, whether you see it in terms of traditional security, if something big happens in terms of a direct confrontation with China or or some gray zone warfare, or even, for example, in non-traditional security issues, whether it's HADR. And there is there is a lot of overlap when you when your ships are moving together, when they are exercising together. You not only learn how to respond to traditional threats, but also how do you respond to uh, when people need you in terms of in terms of non-traditional uh, threats, right? But I think there's a third important uh, sort of uh, role for the court. And that has been building up over the past 15 years uh, to a decade, which essentially is uh, trying to build consensus in the non-Western world over what is a good global order. Mm -hmm. And we, we all know that there's been a huge challenge to, uh, to global order uh, that existed. Uh, and that's not only because uh, a China has risen and has challenged it, but it is also because there were problems. There still are problems in some of the major global institutions. A lot of people in the non-Western world saw them as failures. And because of that, China was then able to capture the imagination of the non-Western world and build uh, coalitions and, and a sort of a, 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 you know, a coalition to challenge that notion. But what the Quad does is then present an alternative. Mm. 
it also shows it allows actually the western world to come to the region and say hey yes we made mistakes uh, and but we are ready to change we are ready to change based on what you tell us is best for you so i think that's an interesting thing that has happened and you see that there's evidence of that where you see uh, india moving if not decisively but definitely uh, and slowly away from uh, the imaginations of a chinese led mm-hmm. order that challenges the western order to one which is more uh, global south which is more leadership of the global south and which is one that pushes and also leads to the assimilation of the aspirations of the global south mm. so is it then about narrative perhaps is it about you know the quad offering an alternative of being an alternative partner of choice as some australian government officials like to say is that part of the calculations and the benefit of having the quad i hope it's not just narratives mm. that's my hope and uh, uh and i don't think that it's just narratives i think when we are talking about uh the the growth of economies especially the ones that have not really been doing well if we talk about a post pandemic world i think it cannot just be narratives mm. uh there have there have to be and i think the quad in many ways at least promises a world in which uh, you are provided support uh without any future kind of uh ways in which you could were being taken advantage of mm. right so words that come to your mind are, for example debt traps uh, right or political influence or meddling with your political processes uh and and this is something that uh countries in in southeast asia countries in south asia countries in pacific uh, pacific uh, in the pacific in general mm. are vulnerable to that could happen to them because they need resources they need assistance and they need uh sort of uh, investments so you could leverage all those needs to sort of set into motion things uh, uh or or structures that help you in the future mm. not those countries specifically therefore the quad that's where the quad sort of promises to be uh offering an alternative mm. to these countries to make choices which are good for them in the long run not just now but in the long run yeah and lucas i know you're a bit of a specialist on southeast asian issues and we've quite often heard one of the key audiences for the quad in terms of its delivery in terms of perhaps the narrative whatever it is um is asean it's asean nations do you think that's the right audience for the quad's work you know if in terms of delivering on these public goods initiatives and we've talked a lot about in our travels a lot about vaccines and the delivery of those coronavirus vaccines and whether or not the quad particularly messaged that well what do you think the impressions of the quad are in southeast asia is it the right audience for quad deliverables I think it's the right audience certainly. I think Southeast Asia, but I'll broaden that out to the developing countries in the Indo-Pacific in particular are key. Uh obviously geographically if you look at a map of the quad countries, Southeast Asia is essentially, you know, in the center of, you know, India, Australia and Japan and then I think US obviously has huge interest there. And so from that perspective, I I think that public goods provision is especially key to persuading Southeast Asia that there are alternatives and i think in this the big elephant in the room is china and especially in recent years belt and road investments but also just general uh, chinese engagement in the region and influence and i think it behooves the quad countries to provide an alternative that really amplifies and carries forward a rules based vision of international order and i think what's key here is for a long time the us has led or you know created the current international order but i think that's no longer enough and i think gorov sports really important that if we're going to provide an alternative that is appealing and it's actually more just and equitable that rules based order also has to change itself 
Mm-hmm. It has to grow. It has to adapt. It has to incorporate voices from the global South, like India. And I think that's why India's role is particularly crucial for the Quad, is it, this cannot just be um, the old status quo. To be appealing, to, to be that alternative, it has to be different. Mm. I think that's a really important important point and important distinction to make. May I, may yeah, I add one point? Uh, regarding the beneficiaries, I completely agree with that point. But uh, regarding it, when it comes to the audience, the taxpayers of the four countries is, all, is also audience. Oh, and that we, they have to know, understand that uh, we are come together to implement some project and that we come closer, the four countries come closer to cooperate. So this is a very important thing that the public on the grassroots level understand the importance of Quad. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. The public has to be brought along. As you say, they are the taxpayers. But also even making the strategic case for why the Quad is a good idea and how the Quad sits alongside these other multilateral groupings and why it's different and why our leaders devote so much attention and time to the existence of the Quad to, you know, the classic example is that within hours of being elected, the Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, got on a plane and went to Tokyo for the Leaders Level Summit. And there was a lot of devastation last year when Joe Biden couldn't make it to Australia and that Quad Leaders Summit was postponed um, because there is so much emphasis on the importance of this frequency and tempo of this leader level meeting. But I think you're right, Shay, bringing the public along and explaining to them why it's so important, perhaps in the strategic community, in think tanks, in uh, our foreign ministries, we kind of understand that importance. We understand the need to have this regular dialogue, this regular coordination, um, building up these bureaucratic muscles, as we like to say. But I think, yeah, that's an important point. The public needs to be brought along. Um, well, Shu, I might also ask you, Japan's often thought to have one of the more positive relationships of the four countries with these Southeast Asian states and also a better track record for overseas developmental assistance and infrastructure are there ways that you think Japan's involvement with the Quad or use of the Quad banner might complicate this track record or this narrative? So far, Japan has uh, pretty much depend on the bilateral relations between Japan and ASEAN countries. And uh, it, at the same time, in G7 Hiroshima Summit last year, Japan emphasized the importance of to boost the multilateral cooperation. So I think the Quad banner would be good for Quad countries at the same time for uh, beneficiaries. However, uh, always one exception, because the at the moment, the biggest beneficiary of Japanese ODA is India. And the second is Bangladesh, and the third is the Philippines. So if we implement the project with India, it's quite difficult to co- uh, convince the Japanese taxpayers mm. why we pay so much to India, although they can afford to do that. that mm project in the ASEAN countries. This is one exception. But in in principle, uh, the multiple cooperation is good. Mm. I think that's right. I think bringing four countries together at all is an incredibly complicated and difficult process. And I think one of the conversations that we've had in some of our travels is that, um, you know, when it comes to dividing up the quad, it's quite easy to exploit rifts between our countries, but ultimately the things that we have in common, the shared interests that we have, the um, shared vision for a prosperous and free and open Indo-Pacific are the things that we really need to bunker down on and use as kind of the basis for the quad existing. Another thing that we've been talking about um, and one of the sort of founding concepts for this trip was to advance some of the work on the working groups. And in particular, one of the working groups um, had to do with dis and misinformation or kind of cybersecurity 
Um, Gaurav, could you tell us a bit about maybe what your organisation has been doing in this space and what the Quad might do to link into some of these initiatives? Right. So, uh, this is a, uh, for me, this is a very difficult sort of challenge to, to counter because, uh, and there are multiple layers to this. Uh, one is obviously sim- things that are much simpler to do. For example, digital literacy. In India, for example, the levels of digital penetration are completely opposite to digital literacy. Mm-hmm. Lots of people have smartphones and access to the internet now than they had, let's say, five years ago. But in terms of digital literacy, the, the level has remained the same. So what you're seeing essentially is that, and that's true for a lot of countries in South Asia and Southeast Asia also, what you're seeing is that uh, the, the mobile phone or the internet for people who are not very literate, uh, anything that comes through, any information that comes through this device is seen almost as unquestionable information. Right? It's seen as a prescription instead of just a piece of information that you have to consider. But you don't have the tools to consider that piece of information. That, that's a dangerous combination. Right, uh, it's a dangerous combination that can be used by people within your own countries as well as people outside of your countries, and we've seen that not just in these regions but also in America, for example, in terms of elections and how mm. people's choices to choose their uh, leaders and choose the policymakers could be influenced by somebody who's sitting outside. Mm. So we've seen that it's a huge, huge problem, and one of the reasons that it becomes more and more complex is because you need you need to have effective legislation that can support. A uh, good uh, sort of good action on these things. There's only a limit to which you can educate people. There are real, real sort of capacity issues, especially in countries with huge populations. Uh, even after you educate people, it's almost like you're you're entering the party very late. Right? They're already immersed in the language of disinformation. They're already immersed or or are sort of brought up in the way in which disinformation works. Mm. Therefore, you need like a balance between. Uh, uh, sort of private initiatives to teach people how to deal with this, but also uh, great intent when it comes to governments in order to lay down policies on uh, good effective data policies. Regulation of uh, generative AI, for example. AI completely flips the whole debate upside down because what it does is it gives you the power to look at huge amounts of data, mm. look at what vulnerabilities in society already exist, the fissures, and which country does not have fissures. We have all, yeah. <laughs> we are all products of our history. Which is which has not been great in any of the any of the countries. Right? Big mess. Yeah. <laughs> right. So so anybody could look at all of that, pick up the fissures, and then do uh, targeting of 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 or to create sort of disruptions within your society. So it's a huge issue. Uh, whether the quad can do something about it, I think some some parts yes, because mm-hmm. but but for for now what we're seeing is uh, that for now what we're seeing is the focus more is on digital inclusion mm. because that's seen as a first step. You want to make sure that first people are fed and then you later come around and start talking about what the quality of food is. Right? So that's that's a sort of a classic dilemma. Do you make sure now that people are fed well or, or what do you do? So I think for now, it's just about making sure that people are digitally connected. Mm. Public services can be delivered to them. And India is, is, is doing great. It's exporting its digital stack, which essentially is the way in which you can access financial services, other public services, health services through the digital medium, which is not always possible in countries as large as Australia, for example, where people are so far yeah. away, uh, right? So it is a challenge, but it is a challenge that the Quad should definitely tackle. It is trying to, and maybe there's more learning that needs to happen. Yeah, yeah. I think that's another big theme of our discussions has been, okay, well, there's lots of challenges, but there's also quite a lot of promise. And mm-hmm. these kind of ways that the quad could practically deliver, right. um, 
I think are quite reassuring. I don't know, Lucas, what do you think? You know, is the is the quad worthwhile? Is it all just promise? Is it a talk fest? Is it effective? What do you think? So I think my my journey on the quad and my interpretation <laughs> of it has been a bit of a roller coaster. I think mm-hmm. it's up and down depending on what day it is and what conversation we're in. But I guess now this is our last official work day in, in Sydney, Australia. And we've I've visited all the quad countries this last year. And I think my takeaway is that we're still building those foundations. We're, we're not done. The building isn't finished. But I think it's a solid foundation and we're moving forward together. And I think year on year, I think there's improvement and, and that can be seen. And, and yes, there are challenges. I think the, the public goods provision, the actual delivery of it is a persistent issue. I think there are disagreements. I mean, just like all friends, the four countries have different differences of opinion that matter. But by and large, I think we, we share a strategic outlook that the Indo-Pacific is the core priority for our interests and a stable one is absolutely vital. And I think, you know, from that perspective, I, I, I'm positive for the future. That's a, I wish we could conclude that, but there's so much more I want to talk about because that's such a nice, neat conclusion and a very positive vision to, you know, close out with. But I do, I do want to ask actually, Shu, in terms of your line of study and your professional experience, is there a particular area that you think the quad could effectively work on together? Yes, this is a bit different from my expertise, but I used to work for as a JAG officer in West Africa, the Silver Realm and Atashi in Georgia, and uh, I was involved involved to implement a 5 million USD grant project in Sierra Leone, and 200 million USD loan project in Georgia. However, there are almost no beneficiaries on the grassroots level knew the project. This is a fundamental project uh, problem of the international cooperation projects. So we, we used to compete with the other donor countries to put the national flag on the ground, but now we have to cooperate to implement one project. But at the same time, we have to explain why it is important to the taxpayers and the beneficiaries at the same time. So accumulation of the small projects or small achievement is a programmatic approach. I can understand it. But at the same time, we can set up or we can come up with the one really big, big impact project to implement together, so let's say in a, a space or cyberspace or whatever, but four countries, the quad countries can decide what the most important project is, and that we can uh, uh, put a lot of money on it, and that we as a showcase, and that we can show it to the uh, public of the four countries and the beneficiaries at the same time, and then this is quad. Mm. We can we can say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We this need- is uh, my just a suggestion, but uh, my concern was that. Nobody knows that the yeah. projects, well, we implemented a lot and we are granted a lot, but we, they don't know. This is a, actually a big problem. Big issue. Yeah, for beneficiaries and uh, taxpayers. Do you think, uh, do you have, like in terms of this project, do you have uh, something in mind in terms of infrastructure, connectivity, or would something that we discussed today morning, like, mm-hmm. a, like a sports diplomacy, yes, 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 would yes, that be something great. that would yes, touch yes. people's hearts? I think so. I completely agree with you. Yes. Yeah. yes. There's something about the benefits of these projects being very proximate to the people that I think is a really important piece in all of this. I mean, it's very, you know, easy to tell people, oh, we're working for your good and that just be kind of an abstract idea or we're working for your security. Okay, well, what does that actually look like day to day? But being actually able to point to something physical and say, well, the quad did that. I think that is, that's something that's quite powerful. I think so. 
Maybe we need a logo. I mean, we got a website. Do we need mm. a logo? Do we need a stamp? <laughs> <laughs> These very practical measures. What would it look like? A theme song? Sure. We can make one. <laughs> that can be the next uh, one of our meetings is we can all come up with a rap that describes yeah. the quad. <laughs> I'm having visions and, and it's causing me to recoil in terror. <laughs> Maybe one day, maybe one day. Well, look, I'll I'll finish on um, perhaps an optimistic question. So um, we often say that these quad initiatives and the working groups, they're, they're slow. We've, we've really built up this bureaucratic muscle. We've found ways to coordinate and we need, to, we need time before we can judge its efficacy. So let's give it time. Let's say in five, ten years' time, what would you have liked to have seen the quad do? I'll start with Gruff. In the next five years? Yeah, five, ten years. I think uh, in the next five to ten years, we should have at least uh, at least ten uh, projects that are visible, mm. that people can clearly associate with the Quad. Uh, I think we were discussing this earlier also. There are existing bilateral, trilateral projects that the Quad partners are already implementing, right? So if you go in as a quad project, you don't really know if it's a quad project or if it's a Japan-India project, if it's an mm. India-Japan-US project. We don't know that. But clear messaging on five to 10 public goods project while you actually enhance, and everybody's ready, you enhance the security aspects of it. Security coordination between the four partners needs to be enhanced. But five to 10 solid uh, uh, public goods projects, mm. infrastructure, connectivity, climate, whatever it is, even if it is on one island, and another project is on another island, if another project is, that doesn't matter. Uh, and to my mind, the scale of it in the first decade also does not matter that much. Because you're, what you're trying to do is create a buy-in and, and, and make sure that people identify what this project is, who did it, and with what intention was it done. Those are mm -hmm. the three important things. As long as you can do that in the next 10 years, I think uh, you're set. I like it, Lucas. I think, so I, I agree 100% with Gaurav's point about projects that can be showcased, right? But I think I'm going to flip it a bit around and I'm going to say what I don't want to see. And oh, so great. In the next five, and ten year, five to 10 years, I think the Quad will have been successful if we don't have a major military conflict, a state to state level one in the Indo-Pacific or, you know, a, a humanitarian disaster. Right. These are the things we don't want to see because the quad is stabilizing. That's the point. Mm. And both on non-traditional security, so humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, all the way to, you know, deterring military conflict. And I think that is, is the key is deterrence or, you know, response is successful when, when you can't point to something and say, this is a tragedy. This is mm. a crisis. And I think we've got too many of those in the world in many regions. And to see the Indo-Pacific remain relatively stable and continue to grow and be prosperous, that is what I want to see. Brilliant. Shu, what do you want to say? In fact, I don't know <laughs> in five years of time or in 10, ten years time because uh, the upcoming U.S. presidential elections and the uh, possible Taiwan contingency and then so on. So mm. of course, I don't know, but uh, at least I can, I'd like to share one, uh, my memory in Georgia. Uh, we implemented one project for a landmine clearance and it was uh, granted by a U.S. Uh, government and the Japanese government, but what that project was suggested by the European Union. So European Union didn't grant, but 
but they provide a lot of information to us. So the information sharing is also an important cooperation. Actually, you don't need to pay, but you can share the information with other donors, and then that donors can implement the project. And then we, in that sense, we can cooperate in a, a deeper level. I would like to see that kind of uh, cooperation as well, not only mm-hmm. the uh, as a four donors, but we can share the information. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. It's a really important point. I think actually something you said really links into what I would like to see in five years' time, which is I'd like to see just the quad continuing. I think we've raised a very important point. I think, you know, there's a number of elections going on this year. The world is increasingly uncertain. There's potential for contingencies, all that kind of thing. And I think the proof of the quad is whether it can stand the test of time. I mean, I'm not even necessarily thinking about delivery yet. I think that's incredibly important. But just the quad continuing on and continuing to have these meetings and continuing to have the intention to cooperate. I think all things considered and considering how much disruption we could have in the election seasons this year, um, I think that is within itself a really important signal um, that we have intentions to cooperate. We have intentions for actions like information sharing that strengthen our own strategic outlook as well as kind of the collective good for the region and advance the shared vision that we have for the region. So I think that's my sort of takeaway. Now, a bit of a tradition we have on this podcast is our by the numbers segment, which has freaked you all out. So, <laughs> so I will ask each of you, starting with Lucas, what is your number and why do you want to share it? So I focus on Southeast Asia. And so I'll say 10, which is the number of current ASEAN nations. 11 uh, is planned for the future with Timor left, but right now 10. And so what I'll say is the reason I say that is even though we look at many places in the world as a cohesive unit, you know, people talk about ASEAN, right? But that's, that misses a lot of that nuance. And I think what's important to understand is that this is a very diverse region. Mm. Indo-Pacific is full of a variety of you know, dozens of cultures, languages, religions, et cetera. There are many interests at play. And I think the fact that we are able to have this conversation in this room in Australia after a year of, of much travel and, and discussion and debate and disagreement I think it's a good sign that, that we're working through these sorts of differences and we are building a shared vision. And I think that's, that's key is it's not going to be easy, but I, I think, you know, the, the understanding of that diversity and then moving forward and finding ways to, to cooperate more closely is key. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Shu, what's your number? It's, it's easy, easy to answer for, but. Off you go. Yeah. <laughs> what's your number? Four. Yeah, <laughs> just four. Just four. Yeah. Those are the quad. Yeah, actually, the uh, Dr. Michael Green said that four is good. Mm. I think I, I I can completely agree with him at this moment. Mm-hmm. Many people say that we should invite South Korea and other countries, but I don't think so. Now it's too too premature as a quad. So we have to deepen the ties among the quad countries first, and then eventually we might be able to uh, invite other countries. But if we invite other countries at this moment, it's gonna be very complicated, mm. and then. We have G7, G20, and the other frameworks. And then if we expand the uh, quad, I don't think it's a good idea to 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 do that at this moment. Mm. I mean, for a start, we don't have a podcast studio big enough for any more than the four of us. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the next area for quad cooperation. Grav. Right. So since these two distinguished gentlemen have already covered uh, quad-related numbers, I'll stick to something that's uh, crucial to India. And the space that India thinks uh, it needs in this new world. 
and that is uh, let's say around thousand. That's the number of uh, level eight diplomats we have in the Ministry of External Affairs. For whatever reason, that is uh, that has been so for a long time. It's there's been a slight increase, and I'm sure the government is now working on increasing that number more. But for me, as India sort of sheds uh, shibboleths of its history and its role in the world and adopts a new role. And also as the world looks at India for answers, for assistance, for playing a leadership role in the global south, it will need more people. It will need more good diplomats uh, who can sort of contribute uh, to this, right? Uh, you're also looking at a contrast. So a thousand diplomats, but the size of the Indian economy, $3.7 trillion now. 2030, we are estimated to overtake the Japanese economy at about 8 or $7.5 trillion. But the Indian government has put into place something called the idea of a Viksit Bharat, which is that India will become a developed country by 2047. According to them, and I completely agree, we cannot do that. Uh, and we cannot push back on China or even coexist with China if we don't have enough uh, enough diplomats mm. to further our interest to have those difficult questions and Indian diplomats uh, ask me or any anyone else are some of the toughest negotiators and we need more of them <laughs> I love it well, that's a very good way to close out well to each of my guests thank you very much for coming all the way to Australia to our humble little podcast studio recording this podcast I'm sure our listeners in the name of understanding the quad and bettering the public understanding I think you've all done us a service today so thank you very much thanks so much thank you Thanks, mate. As we wrap up, I'd like to point out a couple of other podcasts that may be of interest. Our CEO, Dr. Michael Green, is co-host of the Asia Test Board podcast with Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair for China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'd also recommend checking out our USSC Live podcast series that runs recordings from our major live events, including the panel discussions from the inaugural Sydney International Strategy Forum. You can find these on our website, ussc.edu.au or wherever you get your podcasts.